This is true. The numbers are coming in. There's a growing number of people who are saying that they do not believe in God. They don't believe in God. They are what is called an atheist. An atheist is someone who says, I do not believe in God. Really two root words, atheist. A theist is someone who believes in God. Whenever you put the word, the letter A on the front of a letter, it's it's to say no or not. So it's a non-theist or someone who is not a theist, someone who doesn't believe that there is a God. Tonight, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about why I'm a Christian, why I've decided to be a Christian. And it's important uh, to know why you're a Christian. And I think that really every single person, every single person here, if you're a Christian, you should have to get up here or you should have to get up in front of your family or you should have to get up in some small group or some, make some presentation to articulate why you are a Christian. Because I think it's important to not only be a Christian, but I think to know why and to be able to articulate why you are a Christian. And it's, it's, it's very important. Tonight, I want to give you five reasons why I'm a Christian. When you open up a Bible, you, you pick up a Bible, you open it up, and you open it up to the very first verse. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and you'll see it up on the screen. It says this, and you're all familiar with it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this verse asserts the existence of God, and it gives him credit for the world being here, everything that you and I see. So it tells us that there is a God, and not only that, that he is the one that created everything that we see. Now, a lot of people will say, that's great, but I don't believe in God. Thank you very much for putting the scripture there on the screen, but I don't believe in God. Not only that, I don't believe in the Bible. So for that reason, I think as, a, as to make a defense of the faith, you've got to take it all the way back to ground zero. And you've got to defend the whole thing from the ground up. Because if it is true that there is a God, that he did create the world, and that he did come into this world to seek and save that which was lost, it makes sense, it has to make sense to go back all the way to ground zero and to prove the case. So five reasons why I'm a believer, why I'm a Christian. So let's look at these five reasons that I'm a Christian, and I've worded each reason in a single word so that you, you, know, so that you won't forget. Each reason I've put down into a single word for you tonight. The first reason that I'm a Christian is creation. Creation. I want to talk to you tonight about one of the proofs of God being the creator of the world And it's actually called the cosmological argument. Actually, it's called the Kalam cosmological argument. And uh, it it goes like this. Um, You can put the next slide up there. Here is the argument. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. This is a basic presentation of what's called the Kalam cosmological argument. Now, uh, in order for an argument to be correct, uh, it has to be the premise, the premises have to be more plausibly true than not true to get to the conclusion. Yeah, go, go ahead and keep it back up there. Keep it back up there because we're going to be looking at this. Um, and so let's take a look at this. Um, now, the reason we believe premise one to be true is it's, it's kind of basic. Something doesn't come from nothing. 
nowhere in, in, in our existence has it been proven that something has coming, come from nothing. I mean, if something can come from nothing, then why, as William Lane Craig says, why doesn't root beer or baseball or Beethoven just pop into existence without a cause? No, that doesn't happen. And it's, the reason is because nothing pops into existence without a cause. And so um, the, what the atheist has to believe, though, an atheist believes that the universe did pop into existence from nothing. Um, so you, so you, when you look at the existence of the universe, the fact that there is a world here, you, you have to go back. And, and the atheist has to come to the conclusion that the, the universe did pop into existence out of nothing. And if you read Lawrence Krauss, who's a physicist, who is one of the guys that's making a lot of these arguments, you can catch the YouTube debates with many of the theists online, but he, he actually asserts that the universe did come from nothing, but if you read his material and you look at what he states that is nothing, it's not nothing after all, that nothing is something. And so you have to actually go back all the way to nothing because the world came into existence, and if you go back to before it came to, into existence, there was nothing, and something doesn't come from nothing. So it's a basic uh, prep proposition there. Now, you can also prove the, the, um, that the, the, the universe came into existence. See, to prove this to be true, both of the premises have to be more plausibly true than not true. So everything that begins to exist has a cause. That particular premise is not really... Um, it's not challenged that much in the academic world, Christian and not Christian. What's, what is challenged a lot is the second one, which is the universe began to exist. Now, we just talked a little bit about the scientific evidence, but there's some philosophical evidence that the universe did begin to exist. And the philosophical evidence is this, that um, time is marching forward. Right now, we're, it's like 725 and Hopefully I'm going to be done with the message soon and it's going to be 8 o'clock and we're all going to be partying and having a good time and patting each other on the back and saying what a great time we had. Amen? But if you were to go back in time, you can't keep going back infinitely into the, back, into the, into the past. In other words, you can't have an infinite regression of past events because if you had an infinite regression of past events, you would never make it to right now. And so therefore... The universe had a beginning. Time and space came into being. The concept of infinity is actually, it's a concept. It, it exists nowhere in the universe. There's nowhere in the universe that infinite, infinity exists except for in our minds because there's, there's nothing infinite. We live in a finite world. In fact, they actually have discovered Max Planck, a uh, scientist has discovered the smallest measurable unit of time uh, that is, uh, if I can remember, uh, 10 to the minus 43 seconds. So anyways, 10 to the minus 43 seconds, uh, you can't go down any further than that. You can't go down to, if, if you get down further than that, it, it's, you get into kind of some scary stuff. Actually, um, if, if, you know, to prove another a point on that, that we live in a finite world, you can't keep dividing a piece of matter over and over again. You, uh, Chuck Missler would put it this way, you take a piece of string, and the idea is if you cut it in half, 
uh, then you're left with what's left, and then the idea is you could keep cutting it in half, right? Well, there's a point at which you can no longer cut it in half, and that's the smallest measure of mass, and if you go down below that, it's actually called, in science, look it up in your uh, textbooks or look it up on your Google search real quick, it's called non-locality, that it actually ceases to exist in a place, and it's actually non-local, and, and, and you get into um, particle physics, and any, anyways, we're not going to get all down into that. But anyway, so the universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. When you look around, when you wake up and you look around, you look at the, the fact that there's an earth, there's a world out there, it had a cause, and that cause is a creator God. Amen? The Bible tells us all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that he's the creator. Now, the only other idea that you could come up with to kind of go in a direction to refute that is if we're all living in a dream. If actually this is all a dream, we're all in the dream world of someone's mind, and this actually doesn't exist at all. And that is actually um, refuted by the, the idea that each one of us have uh, the concept of the, the reality that is in front of us. And so um, we're getting way deep into some, you know, George Berkeley type of concepts. And if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound and all that type of stuff? That's where that came from. But anyways, the Kalam cosmological universe is, you know, kind of a, a basic a cosmological argument is a basic proof for the existence of the beginning of the universe and thus a creator. Now, the second reason and my argument or my presentation tonight, it builds all the way to the end, okay? So the first reason I'm a Christian is creation. The second reason I'm a Christian is that there's design in this creation. There's design. And this is actually known as the teleological argument, the teleological argument. The argument is better understood as the design argument. It states that the complexity and fine-tuning in the universe is evidence of a creator or a designer, when you look at the universe, you see complexity and you see what appears to be design. Now, you look, at it, you look at it in a way that you and I can understand, okay? You look at the human body. When you look at the human body and what you see appears to be designed, it's a complex system. In fact, the system of the body is made up of a bunch of systems, and each one of those systems is a complex system that all works together, and all of it together is, tells us that there's a design. Um, you look at things such as your face, your eyes, your ears, all of it appears to be designed. But I want to show you something more intricate than just those things. I mean, you look at the face, I mean, you look at the symmetry, we have two eyes, two ears, one nose, you know, it looks like there's, there's some design features when you look at everything. But I want to show, talk to you uh, about something um, that shows complexity to, to a really, uh, I think, astronomical level. And that is um, one of the reasons why you're alive right now is because you have blood coursing through your brain. Yeah, that's, that's true. If you didn't have blood coursing through your brain right now, bringing oxygenated blood to your brain, you would be dead. You would pass out and you would cease to exist. But blood is, it's, it's, it's an incredible, incredible thing. When you look at blood, 
Um, not, not physically, but you know, sometimes you look at physical blood and you, you know, people get sick. But um, I want to look at it figuratively here. You look at blood, and there's an essential protein in our blood, hemoglobin. Hemoglobin. You're familiar with it. We have some nurses in the audience tonight. Hemoglobin is responsible for both the red color of our blood and for the oxygen transfer chemistry system that is required for us to be alive. Without it, we wouldn't be alive, you couldn't breathe, you'd be dead. Now, given the length of the amino acid chain in hemoglobin, in the hemoglobin protein, there is an amount of uh, amino acids. And these amino acids, this chain of amino acids that make up hemoglobin, is a very large number of amino acids. In fact, it's... it's there are, there are over 10 to the 652nd power uh, pure mutations of amino acids possible. In other words, in the, the amino acid of hemoglobin, there are 10 to the 652nd power possible uh, permutations, and none of them are blood within the organization of those amino acids. Okay, you have to follow me on this. Okay, so if you have one of those amino acids in that chain that is not correct, you do not have hemoglobin. Therefore, you have a problem. You have a problem with that, that uh, si system, that situation. So, statistically speaking, if it were left to chance alone, there are, it's actually 7.4 times 10 to the 652nd power ways to arrange these 20 amino acids that form hemoglobin. And if you get one of them not there, you have a, you have a problem. You do not have the, the, the right hemoglobin to actually have the right kind of blood that you need to survive as a human being. So, and this is just hemoglobin. The teleological argument, I haven't even dove into really what the teleological argument is about, okay? This is surface level for all of us to understand what it's about. What it's really about is the cosmolog cosmological constants of the universe. It gets down into the electromagnetic force that is set at a precise point. You get the, to the nuclear, the strong nuclear force. Okay, you learn this in chemistry, right? Chemistry and physics, science. You learn that in an atom, you have a proton and a neutron and those are opposing forces, right? So really, they had to ask the question, what actually holds an atom together? Because you have these repelling forces. Well, science has posited an answer to that, and it's called the strong nuclear force. And the strong nuclear force is actually set. It's like there's a dial, and it's set at the exact spot that it needs to be set at for not only for you to exist, for there to be a universe at all whatsoever. Um, the, the precision on it is, is, it is literally astronomical. So you want to talk about blood, there's no way in this world that the, that the amino acids of hemoglobin came together by chance. There is no way that the cosmological constants of the universe were all set at the precise point that they needed to be set for there to be a universe. 
And this all points back to that there was a designer, a mind behind creation, setting all things exactly how they needed to be. So the first reason I'm a Christian is creation. The second reason that I'm a Christian is design. The third reason that I'm a Christian, I put it like this, righteousness. Righteousness. This is actually called the moral argument. The moral argument for the existence of God. And I actually am not going to have this up on the screen for you, but this is, this is how the argument goes. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective moral values and duties do exist, therefore God exists. Because there are objective moral duties and values, God exists. So this is called the moral argument. Now, when you look at the premises of that argument, if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Uh, and then you look at objective moral values and duties do exist. Now, today, if you go onto college campuses and other places, you will, actually, you will actually find many people today that will try to tell you that the second premise does not hold. They, they, they literally, and I've seen the videos, I've seen the interviews, I've seen the debates, I've seen all of it. I've watched hours of this stuff, okay? Um, they will say, I've, I've actually heard them, you know, was Hitler wrong? Objectively. Was he absolutely wrong? Um, the idea is that, is there something that you can do that is absolutely wrong, separate from any culture or person telling you that it's wrong? And the answer is that there is. When you and I think about that, we come to the conclusion that, that there is, that there are things that are objectively wrong. Is it ever right to abuse a child? Is it, is it ever right to abuse a child in any way, physically, sexually, whatever, in any way a child can be abused? Is it right? Is it ever right? And, and I think... You know, most thinking people, when they're being honest, have to admit that, no, that, that's never right. It's never right to abuse a child. So you have that second premise proven true. So let's look at the first premise. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. If God doesn't exist, the moral values and duties are only the construction of human design and social engineering. Here's where the premise is going. If God does not exist, and the moral laws and duties do not flow from the person of God, then all you're left with is morality being the product of social engineering. What do you mean? I mean, people getting together, and I've actually had these conversations with people, yeah, they crawled out of the cave with their club and they all got together and they said, oh, don't do this. You know, that's bad. No. <clears throat> okay. That's not how it happened. All right, folks. If that's all you're left with, if all you're left with is that people constructed what morality is, then there's no reason to actually live under any moral code because all you're doing is living according to how other people have decided that you should live. And who's to say that another group of people can't come along and 
and come up with their idea of what's right and, and say, no, this is society and this is how we're going to live, which is actually what's happening right now. Um, but, but, but see, that's what you're left with. You're left with that type of chaos. And so if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist, and objective moral duties do not exist at all. And so the atheist objects to that and says, well, of course we know that you're not supposed to kill your neighbor. Well, and I've always wanted, when I've, when I've watched these debates and stuff, I've always wanted to enter into the debate. Like if I could pop into the, you know, beam me into the, up, to the t- up to the podium for just a second. Yeah, what you've discovered is you've discovered the moral law of God. You, you know, God has put his moral law into this universe and he's written it upon our hearts and he's and he's given it to us. And, and so to, to simply say, yeah, it's not right to kill your neighbor is to is to say that you've discovered the moral law that exists because the moral law has come from the moral law giver. Amen. So if God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. If there is no God, there's nothing there to tell anyone what is objectively right and wrong. Only the construction of humans down throughout history. Now, people will try to flip this moral argument back upon the the believer, the, the theist. They'll try to flip it, and it's called the problem of evil. Many people, many believers have actually walked away from their faith in God because they've been confronted with the problem of evil and they have uh, been deceived and, and have walked away from the relationship with God. And the problem of evil states that because there's so much evil in the world, there can't be an all powerful and all loving God. The objection goes like this if there's an all powerful God, then he would stop the evil. If he's all loving, he would stop the evil. And so if there is an all-powerful, if you, if you posit an all-powerful, all-loving God and you look at the evil in the world, that's a problem for the theist. It's called the problem of evil. Many of the apologists and theologians and scholars have dealt with this problem of evils. Uh, <clears throat> one of them you might be familiar with, C.S. Lewis, has dealt with this problem of evil, the, the problem of pain. You can actually bring it all, all the way down to the problem of evil, the problem of pain, the problem of suffering. And C.S. Lewis put it this way, and I think it's a pretty good refutation. The shadow proves the sunshine. The shadow proves the sunshine. You see, the, the-, the atheist who would pro- posit the problem of evil to not believe in God is saying, look at the shadow, look at this darkness, look at the shadow, look at this evil. But all the-, the theist has to do is come along and say, well, yeah, the reason why you have a shadow is because there's the sunshine. You can have sunshine without a shadow, but you can't have a shadow without sunshine. So the sunshine, the shadow, proves the sunshine. That's the way C.S. Lewis put it refuting the problem of evil, okay? Now, we, we, we all agree, evil's bad. Pain is bad, suffering. Well, not all pain's bad, some pain is good. It tells you, don't do that. 
<laughs> when you touch a hot stove, it's good pain. Yeah, don't do it again. <clears throat> the problem of evil. Ravi Zacharias talks about this, this particular issue on the problem of evil. He says, here's the problem with the objection. When you say that there's too much evil in the world, you assume that there's good. And when you assume that there's good, you assume that there's such a thing as a moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. But if you assume a moral law, you must posit a moral law giver. But that's who you're trying to disprove and not prove. Because if there's no moral law giver, there's no moral law. And if there's no moral law, there's no good. And if there's no good, there's no evil. And the entire argument falls and collapses in on itself. Okay, Ravi, Ravi is just a, is a genius. He's, a, he's, he's a great. Just, just get his books and read them, and uh, you will enjoy them. There's a lot more to be said, and I'm just giving a brief survey of these points, so you have to understand. There's mountains of books written on every one of these points that I'm making tonight, and I'm just kind of taking a rake and kind of grabbing up what I can and disseminating it tonight. So, so far, we've got three reasons why I'm a Christian creation, design, and righteousness. There's two more. The next reason that I'm a Christian is revelation. Revelation. Now, there's two, two subpoints that fall under this category of revelation. There's the revelation of the Word of God, and there's the revelation of the Word of God, Christ. Amen? So we have two words. We have two points of revelation. So I want to talk to you briefly on those. Revelation. Because if you admit that there's a creator and you admit that there's a designer that made the world and he designed the things of the world and, and that he's moral and righteous and he's a lawgiver and has given law, okay, then you have to ask, well, who is he? What is this person, this God, that has done that? See, because you could stop right there and say, okay, there's just a God that has said that there's some things that are good and some things that are bad, and he made the world and just live your life. Okay, but it doesn't stop there. Because this God that is creator, designer, and moral lawgiver has revealed himself to the world. And he's done that in two specific ways. Through his word and through the Son, Jesus Christ. So the Bible is the first piece of revelation. The Bible is a, is a unique, supernatural book. It's unlike any book that has ever been written. It's unlike any other book that is in existence on the face of the earth. If God wrote a book, then it would stand alone above all the rest, and it would stand forever. And this is exactly what God says about his word in his word. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, you'll see it up on the screen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away, is what God has said about his word. So, if that's true, then, then God will have preserved perfectly the word of God for us, and will continue to preserve it. Amen? Now, when you look at literature, when you look at all the books that have ever been written, what separates the Bible from the rest of the all the books in the Library of Congress and all the rest of the books and all the libraries of all the world. The Bible is preeminent in literature. You could have two stacks of books 
the Bible and all the other books. And the Bible is preeminent in literature. The Bible is preeminent in circulation. The Bible has been tra- fully translated into, well, you could ask the people over at Wycliffe over in Orlando and ask the, for the update on the translation process. I was at a last languages banquet several years ago uh, by Wycliffe, and they were in the process of getting translations done in the last 2,200 languages that are spoken on the face of the earth. A portion of the Bible is available in over 2,000 languages. Um, the Bible is, I, there's a lot of statistics about how many, how many copies of the Bible are in circulation. It's, um, it's an incredible, incredible number. Um, the Bible is preeminent in influence. There are, more, there are more books written about the Bible. There are more, more books quote the Bible. Um, in fact, I actually, about 10 years ago or so, I actually made a trip back up to Chicago, Illinois, where which is where I graduated from high school in a town called Oak Park, Illinois. I was a part of the 112th graduating class of Oak Park and River Forest High School. Fellow alumni of the school are Ernest Hemingway and Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's. Yep. And Charles Nestor II. Yes. (laughs) And anyways, I went back to the school about... 11 or 12 years ago on a trip up to Chicago and I went by and visited my school and I visited and I went by and I said I'm going to try to find one of my teachers and I found one teacher that I remembered from my high school years and he was now the head of the entire English department and I went up and I visited him in his office and and I said do you remember me he says yeah I remember you and I had done my junior thesis (laughs) with the help of my dad who gave me the idea of how the Enlightenment and Wilbur Wilbur, Wilbur, Wilberforce, or, uh, William Wilberforce uh, stood up against the slave trade in England and ultimately defeated it. But anyways, that was my junior thesis, but I think he did remember that because that was completely out of left field <laughs> compared to what the, the rest of the people were doing you know, for their papers. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, where was I? Okay, back at the school. So I go up and visit him at the school, and I said, I want to ask you a question. I said, can you understand early American literature and English literature without having an understanding and knowledge of the Bible? And he was honest, and he looked at me, and he said, no. And I said, you're going to tell me these people are considering themselves to be educated, and they're going to read Macbeth? and they're going to read Shakespeare, and they're going to read these works, they're going to read Chaucer, they're going to read the Canterbury Tales, and they're going to try to understand what that's all about, and they don't know the Bible, and they've never even read it, and they want to discount it and its influence, and you're not, you're not going to understand William Shakespeare. You're not going to understand the references if you don't understand the Bible. And he, was, he, he admitted the point to me. And I said, okay, thank you. That's what I came here for. No, no. <clears throat> I actually did give him a copy of Lee Strobel's The Case for the Creator and um, wrote a little note in it for him and uh, said, from one Chicagoan to another, um, read this. Because Lee Strobel actually was a reporter for 
the Chicago Tribune and actually was invited to a church by his wife who had become a Christian. He went to the church to disprove Christianity. He sat there for a few weeks and realized the whole thing's true. And he's devoted the rest of his life to helping people realize the truth and the reality of the, of the Christian faith. And um, so anyways, I'm, I'm trying to talk about the Bible here and the preeminence that it holds in literature and influence. It has influenced languages as no other book has. I mean, there are people that speak of the like euphemisms and things that come from the Bible. They don't even know it's from the Bible. Um, more books are written to study the Bible, commentaries, lexicons, word books, theological books, philosophy of religion. The Bible has a preservation against death that has been preserved by the hand of God. No book in the world has been more banned, burned, and outlawed than the Bible. It could, have, it could not have been preserved had it not been uh, God's book and preserved by the hand of God. In fact, uh, Voltaire gave his life to do away with the Bible, French uh, philosopher, gave his life to, to do away with the Bible and its influence. In 1778, Voltaire said this, Within 100 years of my death, Christianity will be swept from existence and passed into history. Well, he's gone and Christianity still continues. Fifty years after Voltaire's death, the Geneva Bible Society purchased Voltaire's house and used his printing press to produce stacks of Bibles. It has stood up to the test of time. The Bible is considered ancient literature. The last part of it, the last part of the Bible was written almost 2,000 years ago. But the Bible is not the only old book. There are many people who have given their lives to study ancient literature. Now, there are several subject matters that come up when you are trying to determine the reliability of a book that is considered ancient literature. There are three areas to look at when you are looking at arriving at what is the text of the ancient piece of literature. The number of manuscripts, the agreement of the manuscripts, and the time between the originals and the manuscripts. The number of manuscripts in the Bible that we have, the number of manuscripts, and I'm going to talk about specifically the, Old Test, the New Testament. Because if the New Testament is true, the Old Testament is true too. If, if, you can, if the New Testament, and this is the way Frank Turek put uh, apologist out of Southern uh, Evangelical Seminary, he puts it. He says, if the New Testament, if you can prove the truth of the New Testament, you get the Old Testament with it. Okay? And so... The, 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 pr the pressure is on the New Testament. Well, the, the, the New Testament has undergone the most extreme textual criticism of any other book in the history of the world. But we've got a lot of information to back it up. The manuscripts of the New Testament were written and copied by hand. There are over 5,700 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, 9,300 other uh, language manuscripts, we have, and this is actually, this figure is actually a little bit dated. We have over 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, but I said that's an ancient, that's an older number because I was at a conference in California where, uh, uh, what's his name? Help me out. Dad, help me out. The guy, white hair, California, da -da -da. McDowell, Josh McDowell. Okay, thanks for the help. <laughs> Josh McDowell was there and he presented what is happening in Africa. Okay, they're actually finding uh, ancient uh, masks in Egypt that they have made out of, out of um, the scrolls of books 
back from antiquity, and they've made these colorful masks. And what they've found is that some of these masks are actually copies of the New Testament. And they've actually developed a whole process as to where they are uh, taking the, the papyrus and, and everything off and, and, and discovering that they've got fragments of uh, many, many of the New Testament. So the copies of the New Testament in terms of fragments is literally going exponentially higher, just piling on to the already big number that we had, which was 24,000 manuscripts. Now, once you have the 24,000 manuscripts, how do you know that what's written in the New Testament is actually what was written by the people? That's where textual criticism comes in, and you have to take the number of manuscripts, and you have to compare the information that's in the manuscripts. Now, I just came across this piece of evidence um, that just from the quotations of the early fathers, okay, so we're not even talking about the manuscripts yet, just from the early quotations of the early church fathers, you can put over 40% of the text of the New Testament together. Okay? Then when you get into the manuscript evidence, you put the text, the actual text, and when I say the text, the actual words of each sentence and every book of the New Testament that, you, that we know exactly what each word was down to a 99.5% accuracy of the New Testament writing. Now, what is the next closest book in when you're comparing ancient books? And the next closest one, second place, is Homer's Iliad which there's a guy in there named Nestor, right? <laughs> um, or was that the Aeneid? No the, no, the Iliad. Homer's Iliad, which is a book of poetry. It was written about 800 B.C. We, we have, okay, 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. We have 643 manuscripts of Homer's Iliad. Um, the manuscripts we have are from the 2nd and 3rd century. The agreement of the manuscripts. Um, a top scholar, New Testament textual criticism, Sir, Kenyon, uh, Sir Frederick Kenyon, said this, there is no fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith that rests on a disputed reading. It can be strongly asserted that the text of the Bible is certain, especially the New Testament. The number of the New Testament manuscripts is so large that it's practically certain that the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved. This can be said of no other book in the world. Most of the variant readings are word spellings and word changes, and not one of these variant readings affects the principal doctrine of the Bible. The conclusion shared by distinguished scholars throughout the world is this. The late F.F. Bruce, eminent professor at the University of Manchester, England, and the author of the New Testament documents, are they reliable? There is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys the textual attestation as the New Testament. The scholar Norman Geisler and William Nix conclude the New Testament has not only survived in more manuscripts than any other book of antiquity, but it has survived in a purer form than any other great book, a form that is 99.5% pure. The text of Homer's Iliad is only 95% pure. I've actually got, oh, I got to do the stuff on Isaiah. Can, can you guys bear with me? Because then I'm going to roll into my last point, okay? I, but I, I can't get this far and not touch on the, the Isaiah 53 passage, okay? If you were going to look at a passage of Scripture and say, okay, um, and, and many Jews 
have contested that the Christians went back and put Isaiah 53 into the text of Isaiah because when you read it, you're, you're, it's like reading uh, an 800 a year prior to Jesus' prophecy of the crucifixion of Christ and exactly what he did as, as the suffering servant. And so um, as far as the New Testament is concerned, the time between the originals and the manuscripts we have is considered a blink of an eye. We have manuscript copies within 100 years of the originals. Remember, Homer's Iliad, the earliest copies were copied over 1,000 years after the originals. So the, the book that's in second place, the, the, the copies, the manuscript copies they have are, are like a thousand years old. Well, you could, have, you could have said that before 1948 about the Old Testament. The King James Version, if you have a copy, was translated from um, Greek from what's called the Masoretic Text. And the oldest copies of the Masoretic Text that we had were from about 900 A.D. And so, I mean, honestly, not that long ago until a shepherd boy in Qumran, Israel, threw a rock into a cave one day. He was probably just playing, right? Bored out there, taking care of the sheep, throwing rocks at caves. And he threw a rock into a cave, and what did he hear? He heard, he heard pottery shatter, and he discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they went in there, and they found unbelievably preserved copies of every book of the Bible. And when they went in and they found and one of the greatest copies of Isaiah that they found that dates back to before Christ, it's a 27-foot scroll of Isaiah perfectly preserved for over 2,000 years in this cave. And I've actually stood in the scriptorium where, where they copied these scrolls, okay? And they went and they found the place of Isaiah 53, and they said, okay, certainly there's going to be all kinds of discrepancies. There's, we're going to have problems. We're going to have issues. And did you know that they found, I believe it's 11 letters in the entire text of the, of the chapter. They found 11 variant letters that do not affect one aspect of the reading. The entire text of Isaiah 53, it was preserved, intact. And what it tells you is it, you give a lot of kudos to those thousand years of scribes who copied all that by hand and they did such a good job and joe and i were at a pastor's conference where they talked to us about the scribal process and how they would set their pens down between the words and they and and, and it was such a painstaking process this was an unbelievable process folks and to know that the text of isaiah 53 is preserved perfectly the revelation of christ the revelation of the word the person of Jesus Christ I want to talk to you about. Because this is the next, when you accept the fact that there's a creator and he's a designer and he's a moral lawgiver and that he has given us a word and not only that, but he entered into his creation and revealed himself fully to us in the person of Jesus Christ. This is why I'm a Christian. The person of Jesus Christ when looking at the existence of God, I'm not talking about a mere concept. I'm talking about a personal, knowable God. The Bible teaches us that Jesus has made God known to us. John 1, verse 18. Do I have that? No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who was in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Amen? And then Colossians 2, verse 9. Paul said this. 
For in him, speaking of Jesus Christ, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So what Paul is saying here is the God who's the God of creation, the designer of creation, the moral lawgiver, the Godhead, dwells in Christ bodily. And so the person of Christ is the revelation of God to man. Amen? The Old Testament is all about Israel, God's people, and how he taught them to walk with him. God taught Israel about himself through the commands, the tabernacle, the priesthood, and the sacrifices. And they all point forward and are completely fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus claimed to be one with the Father. In fact, at one place in the Gospels, he says, I and my Father are one. Now, who knows the name of God? Who knows what God's name is? Yahweh, right? It's the Y-H-W-H in Scripture. Yahweh is his name. God is actually, it's a kind of an unfortunate term, really, because God has a name. And it's to say, to say God is to say the type of being that is a God, but not yet to identify the God. But to, to call him by name, is to identify directly with the person, the God who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush and to Israel and to the other greats in the Bible. Now, Yahweh is, the name is taken from actually the verb to be. It's actually I am. It's as if God said my name is I'm, I am, I exist. And then yet you have people say, no, he doesn't exist. And yet, his name is I Am. <laughs> that's going to be an eye-opening uh, little thing that's going to happen when people stand before God. Yahweh is I Am. And Jesus claimed to be the I Am. In a powerful passage in John chapter 8, Jesus is having a discussion. actually has made this legal case for his identity. He's presented witnesses and the whole thing that's Incredible. I actually go through this in detail in the first chapter of my book. I present the entire legal case that Jesus presents for, the, for his identity um, in the first chapter of my book. But it, it culminates, it climaxes with his statement to the Pharisees when they're going back and forth and Jesus has claimed to have seen Abraham. And the Pharisees are now mocking him, saying, who do you think you are? You're not even 50 years old and you say you've seen Abraham? And Jesus says to them in John 8, 58, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Well, he wasn't really claiming to be the I am. No, no, no. Read what actually happened right after that. <laughs> they took up stones to stone him to death for the blasphemy, that they, the apparent blasphemy that he had just declared to them. Before Abraham was, I am. But the key piece about Jesus that validates all his claims not just the verbal claim of I am. Before Abraham was I am. The key piece that validates his identity is his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus Christ has not, was not resurrected, if there was no empty tomb, then you can throw out the entire thing. You can actually approve the point all the way to this point that we've made tonight. And if Jesus Christ was not resurrected from the dead, Paul says, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And so Jesus 
The Bible says, the New Testament tells us, that he did rise from the dead. Now, there's textual evidence. There's eyewitness evidence. The, wit, the, the evidence of the New Testament, of the Gospels, is eyewitness evidence of the resurrection. Because the Gospels were written, most of them within about 30 to 40 years of the event of the resurrection, within the time frame that many of the people would be alive and, and easily able to refute the claims made by the gospel writers. And so the eyewitness testimony of the gospel writers is important. In fact, and I wrote this down on a, I was doing some extra study for this message and I came across a little interesting piece of information that there are, I'm going I'm to forget the number, but I want to say there was a guy who went through Act, the book of Acts, chapters 13 through the end of the book, and he found, I believe, 83 pieces of eyewitness evidence of Christ and the resurrection that would only be known by, eye, by people who, who were eyewitnesses of the events. And, um, and the Gospels contain many of those pieces of evidence uh, that, that is just incredible. One of the pieces of evidence dealing with the resurrection is called embarrassing testimony. If See, where people want to say that, well, the, the, the gospel writers made up the resurrection, right? This is, the, this is the point that they have to make. This is not true. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, this is not true. They made this stuff up. Well, one of the points that is asserted by some apologists is the fact that the gospels are filled in relation to the resurrection account with embarrassing testimony. And Frank Turk puts it this way, you never embarrass yourself to lie. <laughs> if you're going to lie about yourself, do you embarrass yourself? Do you say, look, I didn't know what I was doing. I was scared to pieces. We were all huddled back in the house. And guess what? The women went down. And found the empty tomb. We had to come second. They told us about it. This is what the Gospels tell us. And this is what the, the apostles wrote down. The eyewitness testimony. Yeah, we were, we, were, we were behind closed doors fearing for our lives. And the women were brave enough to go to the, 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 the tomb on the morning. And it was a group of women... And the reason why this is, this is embarrassing on several fronts, and, and, and not, to, not to disparage any of you ladies here, okay? But a guy would not do this. A guy would not write this. If a guy was making this up and he wrote the Gospels, he would say, yeah, we all went down. We were brave. Peter, James, and John led the way. We got down there. We beat up the Roman guards. And we found that Jesus was alive. No. The men were back in the house fearing for their lives, and the women went. The reason why this is doubly embarrassing to, to, to put into the text of Scripture is that now is it embarrassing for the guys to write this stuff about themselves. Except for John, who has to 
say that he outran Peter, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> he, he, you know? See, and that actually proves my point. You, you're lying, you know, you're telling the truth, you know, the, the, the good about what you're doing. But anyways, a woman's testimony at that time was not worth, uh, it was not actually a, 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 um, fully included as a legal, in a legal proceeding. And so to put forth the, the, the testimony of the women as the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection, it's, 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 it's in a category called embarrassing testimony. And this would not be included if the story was made up. Paul includes eyewitness testimony as well. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 3, he said, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and after that he was seen by over 500 brothers at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And so here's Paul's assertion that the, the eyewitness testimony of the resurrection. So Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, and he is alive right now by his spirit, which leads me to my last point. Amen. Right? Amen. Have you had a good time? Have you had a good time? Okay. My last point is this. The reason why I'm a Christian, and this is, this is short, experience. There's five reasons why I'm a Christian. Creation, design, righteousness, revelation, and experience. Personal experience. You can know all these proofs that we've discussed tonight. You can know them better than I've presented them, and I feel like I did a sloppy job. And have an understanding that God exists and not know him. In fact, the Apostle James says that even the demons believe that he exists and tremble. It's not enough to know about him. God wants us to know him. And you can know him. And I've come to know him. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a point of, of, of bragging. It's, it's, a, it's a point of, I'm thankful that I can say that. I'm thankful that I can declare that to a group of people. That, that I know the Lord, that I've come to know the Lord. And I, and I have what William Lane Craig calls an inner witness of the Holy Spirit. You say, what's the proof that trumps all the other proofs? And this is the one proof that you can have, and you actually don't need all the rest of them. All the rest of them are great. <laughs> They're fantastic, and I've spent hours and hours reading stuff and it's, I, I love it. I don't know if you love it, but I love it, okay? But the most important point you need is this last point. An inner witness of the Holy Spirit. And you can have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. It's a witness that you have that you've come to know the Lord. That you know that He's real. That you've actually had that you have that relationship with him. This is the way William Lane Craig describes it. It's the knowledge by acquaintance, so to speak, where you come into a personal relationship with God himself. And the most important question is this. Do you know him? Do you know him? 
Have you come to know him? He wants to, you to know him. He want, in fact, your life will be complete when you come to know him, when you come to Jesus. This is what Peter says, coming to Jesus, all this stuff has happened to us. When we come to Jesus and we meet Jesus and we come to know him, that we experience his glory, that we experience the glory of God, the creator, the all-powerful, the designer, this, this incredible, incredible God that made us, that, that, that knows everything about us, that knows our past, our, our present, our future. He knows everything about your body right now. He, he's literally holding the atoms of your body together right now. He's holding the atoms of the universe together. Paul put it this way in Colossians, in him all things consist. And he wants to know you. And he wants you to know his glory, which is why you were created. And this is exactly what John, the revelator, the apostle said in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. For we are and we're created for his good pleasure, for his glory. Amen? To experience his pleasure is his glory. And um, I want to invite you tonight, if you don't know him, if you don't know him, to put your faith in him, to put your trust in him. It's the most important thing that you'll ever do in your life. It's the most important decision. More important than many other important decisions. There's a lot of important decisions that we make. This one is at the top of the list. Because it comes down to this. The entire world. Are you his? And is he your God? Is Yahweh your God. Have you made him Lord? And that's what it comes down to. And I'm here to tell you that that's what I've done. And I invite you to do the same.